It's a hard act to follow there. Thank you for sharing that, Angela. Um, and I, I want to just echo the part where uh, when I shared the news uh, last Sunday that, uh, that the clinic had, had done away with my uh, pastor's position there uh, after seven years of ministry um, because of financial reasons, um, I think I think we were in in some ways broken, but when we went to the rail uh, in prayer and you surrounded us as our church family, it was truly a blessing to us and lifted us up. Um, so I echo that, and um, um, Angela has a way of saying things that. Well, maybe I should just hand her the robe and the uh, and let her do it. But um, yes, this is Transfiguration Sunday, and it has something to say to us as the family of God, as ministers of the faith. The uh, gospel lesson is in Mark chapter nine, and it says six days later. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. This is one of those passages where it starts out with, with, a, with a six days later, and then that makes me have to go back. What happened six days earlier? Six days prior, something significant had occurred. What was it that happened six days ago that it would be mentioned here in this passage with the transfiguration? Can you imagine? Moses, Elijah, Jesus standing on the mountaintop in glorious white. And Mark says six days ago something happened. Had to be important. Well, if we look back six days prior to this, Jesus had asked his disciples a couple of questions. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? These are questions we're still asking ourselves. The people thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist, right? Raised from the dead. Or that he might be the prophet Elijah or one of the other ancient prophets like Isaiah or Moses. And then Peter makes this declaration 
in answer to Jesus's question, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock of your faith, the rock of your testimony, on that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. After Jesus makes this declaration to Peter, he starts to tell them something that's troubling. He says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And they're going to kill me. But hear me now on the third day. I will rise from the dead. Disciples didn't understand what he was telling them. Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, God forbid that. This must never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, if you're Peter, that had to hurt. He was saying what he was saying because he truly loved Jesus and didn't want to see him go through anything like what Jesus was describing. But see, Jesus knew the plan. And so now, six days later, Jesus and Peter and James and John are on top of a mountain. And it says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes become dazzling white. See, this is the transfiguration. Jesus becomes radiant in glory on the mountaintop. Jesus reveals to the three disciples that are present there, at least in part, his divinity. See, they were setting their minds on, not on divine things, they were setting their mind on human things. So now Jesus is giving them a taste of the divine. They got to see him in his glory so that they could get an, a, a greater understanding of exactly who it is Jesus is. Because before they'd only seen him in his human body. And so after telling them six days ago that he was going to die and be resurrected, this helped them to understand how that would be possible by allowing them to glimpse 
his godness. And so as we read the passage, suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. See, the people, if you recall, six days ago, as they were talking about it, were speculating that Jesus might be Moses or Elijah. And yet here in front of the disciples, all three are standing together as separate people. And so that blew that theory right out of the water. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So here in all their glory are the representatives of the law that Jesus fulfilled, the prophets whose countless prophecies told about Jesus and all of whom Jesus fulfilled. And there they are, the law and the prophets represented meeting with the author and the finisher of the new covenant. The old way is being set aside. The new way is being ushered in. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, this is great. Let's make three houses. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's stay right here. See, it's such a great moment on the mountaintop. I don't know if you can imagine this. It's difficult for me in my, in my head. Jesus and Moses and Elijah in, in all their radiant glory. And, and Peter standing there doesn't ever want this moment to end. Let's stay here a while. Let's build some houses so that we can hang out on the mountain and never go back down into the valley where all the stuff happens. But see the conference on the mountaintop? That's not the main event. As much as Peter, as much as we would like the experience on the mountaintop to continue there's so much work that has to be done, and it's not on the mountaintop. It's down in the valley. It's down in the muck. It's down in the mire. It's down where people lose their livelihoods. It's down where people get sick. It's down where people are taken from us unexpectedly. It's down where even pastors of big churches in Kingwood find themselves in hospice leaving a family and children to wonder, where is God in all of this? And so, while we are often called to the mountaintop, why do we get called there? We get called there for instruction. We get called there for inspiration. We get called there to be recharged. We get called there to be equipped. But while that is where we get all of that stuff, our true calling is always down in the valley. You see, we're not so much as called to the mountain as we're being sent from it. We're sent from the mountain. While he was still speaking, 
Suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them and from the cloud a voice, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. No Moses, no Elijah, no law, no prophets. Just the new covenant, just the word of God, just Jesus by himself. Listen to him, God says. Of the three people that were before the disciples on the mountain in radiant glory, God says, listen to Jesus. See, here is represented by Moses, the law, by Elijah, the prophets, and by Jesus, the new covenant. And God is saying, of those three, listen to Jesus, because Jesus supersedes and fulfills the other two. Listen to him from this point on. As much as the disciples would like to stay in the glory of the moment, as much as we might like to remain in the law and in the prophecy, the time on the mountaintop has to come to an end because there is work to be done down in the valley. Now I know, and I'm sure you have figured it out too, that when we do ministry, there's this sense of apprehension that we feel at even beginning to climb the high places into the presence of God where we get all the stuff we need to go back down, right? There's apprehension, there's even fear of climbing the mountain. Why? Because we're not afraid of the mountain. No, we're afraid of the descent. We're afraid of being sent into the world to do what God equips us to do. The experience that I felt when I first received this call to full-time ministry... is this fear of the descent. See, I felt at home in the beginning in the high places where you commune with God. You know these places. Where you come to church and you get filled up. The part that terrified me was leaving these walls and going out and being pastoral, being a teacher, being a minister of the faith. See, that's reason for apprehension, isn't it? That's leaving your comfort zone, telling somebody about Jesus, going into a hospital and sitting next to someone who might be taking one of their last breaths and trying to provide peace and comfort and understanding in that situation. I don't know about you, but I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel equipped. I didn't feel qualified at first in the beginning. Because I couldn't see the joy on the other side of that experience. The joy 
of making that descent into the valley. There's a, an author, uh, a UK, um, a British author, who wrote a spiritual allegory back in the mid-50s. It's called Hind's Feet on High Places. And she tells the story of a girl named Much Afraid. I don't know why her parents named her Much Afraid. She's led up a mountain to the high places of love by a shepherd in the story. And as they ascend this high mountain, there's water that cascades down and sings a song. It says, standing before the towering cliffs still, still to be scaled, the shepherd has much afraid look up at the mighty waterfall flowing down from the high places. When she does, she's awed by the tremendous height of the rocky lip over which the water cascades down and the deafening noise as it crashes down on the rocks at the foot of the fall. Never has she seen anything so majestic or so terrifying. And she hears the water singing, from the heights we leap and go to the valleys down below, always answering to the call to the lowest place of all. To much afraid, the fall of the mighty waters is both beautiful and terrible. She can hardly bear to watch the water cast itself down from the heights above, only to be shattered on the rocks beneath. Sensing her apprehension, the shepherd urges her to look more closely. Let your eye follow just one part of the water from the moment when it leaps over the edge until it reaches the bottom. And as she does, she gasps in wonder. Over the edge, the waters were like winged things, alive with joy, so utterly abandoned to the ecstasy of giving themselves that she could almost have supposed that she was looking at a host of angels floating down on rainbow wings, singing with rapture as they went. To the water, this was the loveliest, most glorious movement in the world. And its joy didn't end when it broke upon the rocks below. In fact, the lower the water fell, the lighter and more exuberant it became. A rushing torrent, it swirled triumphantly around the rocks and then flowed downward lower and lower around and over every obstacle in its way. As the shepherd explains, at first sight, perhaps, the leap does look terrible. But as you can see, the water itself finds no terror in it. No moment of hesitation or shrinking. Only joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Because it is the moment natural to it. Self-giving is its life. It has only one desire. To go down and down and give itself with no reserve or holding back of any kind. You can see that as it obeys that glorious urge, the obstacles which look so terrifying are perfectly harmless and indeed only add to the joy and the glory of the movement. From the heights we leap and go, 
to the valleys down below, always answering to the call to the lowest place of all. See, when I first got started in ministry, that wasn't me at all. I was Peter, man. I wanted to stay on the mountain. But the conference on the mountaintop is not the main event. As much as Peter would like the experience to continue, there's work to be done, and the work is not on the mountaintop building, building dwelling places for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. While we're called to the mountaintop to receive what we need, our true calling is always in the valley. See this transfiguration of Christ that we celebrate this Sunday is powerful. It's a glimpse of the divine glory of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't ever meant to keep us on the mountain. But rather, it's meant to energize us, to motivate us, to pour ourselves into the valley. Charged with this radiance of Christ to do the work of spreading the good news of the glory and the majesty and the divinity of Jesus. We're not so much called to the mountain, we're sent from it. And to be sent, we have to be willing to go. Willingness requires self-surrender. E. Stanley Jones wrote, Self-surrender is at the very heart of God and is at the very heart of all of his attitudes and actions. And so when God asks us to surrender ourselves, he's asking us to fulfill the deepest part of himself and the deepest part of us. See, that's the very nature of the triune God, and it's the true human nature that God created in us. And I'd have to agree with Stanley Jones that the Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is all about self-surrender. I think my microphone's about to go, Bobby. God surrendered his son to the world. Harmonious relationships are always about surrender. God surrendered his son to the world. Jesus surrendered himself to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit surrendered to the sending of the Father and the Son. All three surrendered gladly, just the same way as Jesus looked past all the suffering of the cross, set his eyes, the Bible says, on the joy put in front of him. Just like that. As Christ followers, you and I have to surrender self to Christ because self is a barrier to relationship with him and a barrier to transformation in him. 
which is what Angela was saying out of 2 Corinthians. Was it 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians. See, a person can't answer a call to minister in the lowest parts of the valley without surrendering to the self-giving love of God. It's impossible. It's the love that generates the joy in the descent from the high places of fellowship and communion with him as we take joy in pleasing him with the good works that he puts in front of us to do. And so I say to you today, take joy in the descent. Get what you need here in the high place. But take joy in the descent into the low places as you get dirty out there with those people. You know who they are, right? Those people that don't know Jesus, but Jesus loves them just the same and wants them to be in fellowship with him. You know those people, right? And if you wake up in the morning and, and you're, you're, you feel a little bit of trepidation, you're not alone. I, you know, I'm much less likely to joyfully descend into the valley if I forget to surrender myself every time I open my eyes in the morning. If I, if I don't surrender intentionally every time my alarm goes off, if I don't surrender myself, I'm liable to make that descent kicking and screaming the whole way down. But there's one thought that enters my head as I prepare each day to descend into the valley from the high places of prayer and communion with him. There's one thought, and that is at any point on my descent, I can stop and I can look to the high places from where my help comes. If we just remember to look to the high places, then we too can cascade like the singing waters back into the valley and continue this kingdom work that's put before us. And that's why we're here this morning. to get equipped to go careening joyfully down the mountain again out into the world to tell people about a God who loves them who will not abandon them who every time we run away if we stop and turn around there he is every time because even when we give up on him even when we're down, covered in the muck and the mire, God is there. He's looking at us. He's waiting for us to turn around. Because he loves you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.